This is Linux at Work, Episode 2, for the 8th of March, 2015. I'm your host, John Shire, here with my co-host, Chester Wisniewski. Welcome, Chester. Thanks. Uh, late as usual. I guess there is something about getting into a rhythm with these things, right? Like, uh, you know, we, we, we both have rather busy professional schedules, and making room for another podcast in our lives, I think, has been a little more challenging than we thought. But uh, here we are. At least we got to, to number two. So, you know, third time's a charm, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, it, you're right. It, it is a bit of a, of a chore getting to do this stuff on our spare time, as it were. But uh, I think, uh, you know, as, as we get into it, I think... Uh, will be able to get uh, on, on a better role, if you will. Well, I, I kind of look at this like I, 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 kind of the way I look at university professors and things, and that if you don't actually do the thing you proclaim to be an expert in every day, then you're probably just a poser. And maybe work getting in the way of talking about Linux means that we're actually using Linux more than we're talking about it. It, it probably isn't such a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that uh, I spent, or I should say, we spent some considerable amount of time this uh, this weekend troubleshooting some own cloud worries, uh, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on, I think uh, is, is a good testament to the fact that we actually do spend quite a bit of time at the keyboard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, well, I guess it, it, it goes, it, it's sort of a testament to the fact that we like to explore all of the possible options, including making things not work and 10 times more difficult than they need to be so that we understand things uh, at their kind of root level. And, and I, I guess I, I would like to think that we can prevent others from wasting as much time by perhaps sharing our experiences. Or, or perhaps, you know, maybe they want to go through the same pain we did. Well, yeah, yeah. If you would like to replicate our pain, uh, please contact us uh, via email at hosts at linuxatwork.org, and we'd be more than happy to give you a detailed list of how not to go about getting this to work. Or at least tell you where to start to go wrong. Well, right. Well, you, everybody needs a pointer. You, you need, you need, <laughs> you need you a know, vector. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we don't really have a rhythm down in this podcast yet for precisely kind of an order that we're going to do things or anything. But we talked a bit about some new projects last week, new releases, that kind of thing. And I thought we'd start out there, perhaps, in that um, the XFCE project released version 4.12 uh, about a week ago. And oh, I really I really love that guy. That's the one the correct horse battery staple thing, right? <laughs> right. Not XKCD, XFCE. And oh, it's, that, it's, right. I completely can understand how you could be confused because it's been almost two years since they released version 4.10 and 4.12 was finally released. Uh, and I have to say, I mean, uh, I'm not sure what went on behind the scenes to cause it to be two years worth of work, but some pretty good, you know, pretty big improvements. Um, from my perspective, I, I have, uh, I almost always have multiple displays. Like I work from laptops and then when I'm home, I plug them into screens arrayed across my desk because, well, that's, you know, more pixels is better pixels. And uh, multi-display support in, in XFCE had always been a problem, which is one of the reasons I, I don't use it. In fact, when I first uh, switched back to using Linux as a primary desktop for a while, I was using Zubuntu, the XFCE release of uh, Ubuntu. And I quit using it because of these types of irritations. I was having a lot of issues with stuff um, just not uh, working, like multi-monitor support, not working without hacking a million different xconfig files and, you know, this kind of nonsense. And I'm too busy for that. I mean, like, it's interesting to see how it all works, but I don't want to actually have to make all the knobs turn every time I plug in a different display. And I, I know like myself, uh, you do a lot of presentations and it would drive me nuts to not be able to easily just plug in a projector and have it work. And I use GNOME and 
I just plug stuff in and it works. Yeah, I'm I'm unapologetically a GNOME fanboy at this point. I, I've tried a few desktop environments, and uh, you know, GNOME is just one of those things that works. It's plug and play. You just let it go, and and most of the stuff just works right out of the box. And uh, for that reason, and that reason only, it's it's something that I'm willing to trust my professional life to. Because as you said, the the two of us do quite a lot of stuff on the road, specifically presentations, and I just can't be fiddling with, you know, video drivers and xconfigs in order to just get a, a stupid PowerPoint present, or I, I should say a, a uh, impress presentation up. So yeah, I, I, I've, I've been a GNOME fanboy, I guess, for a couple of years now, uh, despite trying some of these things. Now, you know, you said, all right, so XFCE, the, the thing that was keeping you back was the fact that it didn't have multiple display support. Now, why aren't you using XFCE now? Well, I guess I just grown not to like it as much. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a few other holdbacks also, which came along with 412. So high DPI support for my 4K monitor. They they have a, a high a high DPI uh, theme now, which is cool. Uh, better power management. The one thing I really love about XFCE that, but I guess I don't have to switch to it to have it is a Thunar, the 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 file manager in XFCE. I've always liked it better than Nautilus, and now they added tab support and things like that, which makes it even better. Um, but I guess not using it as my desktop environment, I, I, I'm used to shortcuts, right? Like I use the let's call it the super key. Let's not use the W word on my keyboard. <laughs> To bring up the new, although, although you do have a, a few new caps on your keyboard, don't you? I do. I custom ordered some keycaps for my mechanical keyboard with Tux, and so I've got custom keycaps for uh, the Super Key and the Function Key and the Escape Key currently on my keyboard. Maybe I should post a, a photo to the blog that uh, include our friend Tux, and uh, I made sure to uh, defenestrate my keyboard. But that that key. When you say, why not use XFCE? That's why, right? Like, I want to hit that and be able to immediately jump to a place where I can start to control my environment. I like that. I like moving my mouse to the upper left corner and being able to jump to all my windows. I found that when I was in XFCE, I missed all those things. Now, I guess it's because I just needed to learn the other way to do it. I mean, this is the problem, right? We get stuck in a mode and people go, well, where's the window? Where's the start button in Windows 8, right? Like people get upset when things change. And I'm not normally one of those people, but in this case, I'm a keyboard shortcut junkie and I love fast access to lots of stuff. And I, I haven't found that rhythm in XFCE, so I went back to GNOME. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, if nothing else, I've gotten used to GNOME and uh, while it, you know, some people might not like the way it looks or might not like some of the functionality. It's it's what I've grown used to. And I spent some time with Unity for a little while. And, you know, when I when I was using Ubuntu a few years back and, uh, I, you know, I think that was a nice environment. But GNOME seems to have all the bits and pieces that I need. And I think when it comes to things like desktop environments, it's just it's what you're used to and, and uh, what you can use more efficiently. So uh, I, I can't. I, it, so there's not really a you know a wrong flavor of of DE out there. It's just uh, you know what you like. Well, and uh, you know for folks that are stuck in the past that like GNOME two instead of GNOME three, I'm 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 kind of thinking after last episode that I, I want to intimate that it could be Linus Torvalds, but perhaps I shouldn't. I uh, maybe I won't go there. But uh, Mate. So a lot of people have uh, cottoned on to the idea that they like the way GNOME 2 works, but they don't want to be truly stuck in the past. So Mate is a... So you're not talking about the T, right? No, we're not talking about the T here. We're talking about the desktop environment, which is in essence uh, a corpse reviver for GNOME 2. First drink reference. But 
GNOME 2 was, you know, a lot of people liked it, but of course you don't want to stay in old versions of libraries and GTK and da 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 da. So Mate is basically a modern um, implementation of the GNOME 2 interface for people that have their hate on for GNOME 3. And the good news for Mate fans is, I guess, that uh, Ubuntu officially adopted it as one of their uh, corporate-supported distributions from Canonical. And while that might not seem important, I think the reason you and I both like GNOME 3, in our cases, is that it's got a lot of development. Lots of developers on it, meaning bugs get fixed quickly, lots of feature enhancements on a regular basis. And the more developers you have in a project, the better. And and official support from a corporate sponsor like Canonical for something like Mate will likely ensure that it continues to get the love it needs and make it a very reliable desktop environment for those people. So I, I think that's a great thing. Absolutely. I think Ubuntu does a good job at trying to uh, bring Linux to uh, different segments of the of, of the user base that may not consider Linux at all. I mean, you know, we've, I think we've mentioned it already that we're both Arch users. And if, if you're going to go, you know, look at the spectrum of Linux distros, and I, I, I should be probably putting on my flameproof underwear at this point, but, you know, you've got sort of Ubuntu on the sort of Windows Mac ease of use end of things. And then you've got the launch a space probe end of things, which is more of the arch side of things. I think it's a it's a good thing that Ubuntu not only gives you that ease of use, but also gives you some uh, some flexibility and some variety, right? So it's not just that you're locked into one flavor of Ubuntu. You do, you do have a little bit of choice within that particular macro category. If I take a 10-sided die from back in my Dungeons & Dragons days and I roll it and I Google for an answer for a Linux problem, I mean, eight times out of 10, I'm going to get an answer telling me how to fix it in Ubuntu or what the problem is in Ubuntu. And probably the other two times I'm going to get something linking me to the Arch Wiki. And that, you know, that's the reality out there. So, I mean, Ubuntu kind of sets the stage for that. They are the most popular. I don't know if that's technically the most popular according to DistroWatch, but when I talk to professionals who want to use Linux but don't want to know more about Linux than they knew about Windows or OS X, they're using Ubuntu. They can load it, use it, not worry about it. It's just a thing. It updates itself and it moves on. Actually, I just built a laptop for my children and I, I put Ubuntu on it because A, you know, I knew that it was going to work out of the box on the hardware that I had available to me, which in this case happened to be a Lenovo T510, I think it was. And B, I actually left Unity on that for them because I it seems like a nice and easy intuitive environment for them to work in. And, and all, all of a sudden, you know, it was kind of funny. I wasn't sure what the reception would be. They're kind of used to OSX at school and they've used some Windows at home. But uh, my, my oldest child, uh, she's taken to it right away. And uh, it's kind of it's kind of fun to see it a little bit kind of warms the cockles of your heart, as Dennis Leary would, would say. I've, I, she's even started working in Scratch, which is the MIT programming language for children. She's even started doing projects and that right away so it's it's a nice thing to see that they you know without really a, a big learning curve kids are able to just pick it up and, and start doing something useful with it well it does tell you something about the mind of a child that it can just embrace these things where old people say where's the windows button <laughs> exactly and apparently there there's no confirmation of this but apparently hipsters have been seen using Ubuntu in, in Australia. So not sure if that's a good thing or not. Wow. So I, I didn't realize, uh, 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 you know, a friend of ours who's got hipster-like tendencies uh, has not been using Ubuntu, but I'll talk to him about that. Now, 
I speak of new things since we're still on the new topic, uh, new browser. And, you know, there's one thing I was thinking aside from another hole in my head that I needed. It was another browser. The Vivaldi browser by, uh, well, I guess it started, I, I shouldn't say by, I'm sure he didn't do it alone, but but started by uh, John von Teschner, uh, who's the former CEO of Opera, is basically a Chromium in, uh, derivative with Opera-like add-ons to it, which kind of led me to the conclusion that, well, why not just use Opera? I mean, <laughs> Opera's basically Opera with Opera extensions, which now that Opera's using the Chrome rendering engine, it's kind of sort of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, I guess maybe it's something to do with keeping application control people in business. I don't know. It, it, yeah, why, why do we need another browser? I think that there's a nice landscape out there today in terms of the choice that you have. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of offshoots as well. So I'm just not seeing the, the, the niche for this. Maybe I'm being short-sighted, but yeah, I, I just, I don't get it. That Plain and simply, I just don't get it. I mean, it's quite nice. I, I play with it a little bit. It, it's there's... Oh, it's clean. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a nice browser. It's clean and it, it you know, it has a very classical name, but uh, you know, when, when you, come down to it is it really going to offer you more than uh any of the browsers out there today well sticking with the floss perspective it is free libra and open source unlike opera which is a commercial product so there, there's there's an argument there i mean we, we've seen this idea of of spawning chrome derivatives go wrong previously so we'll see what happens with this one i mean there was the the white hat security aviator browser which conceptually is brilliant you know Hey, we'll de-Googlefy Chrome so you can use it without having, you know, Mountain View in your living room, which sounds great, except the changes they had to make and keeping pace with the the sort of the, the patches and all the security issues that are going on with a modern web browser and its complexity every day led to it being insanely vulnerable, even though it's brought to you by a security company that's promising you privacy. So that's the biggest concern I have about something like Vivaldi is that what resources are behind it and can it compete? with even keeping up with Google, because this isn't about outdoing Google. It's can you consume the fixes from the Chrome team fast enough and with enough quality assurance that you're keeping me safe while you're bringing on these new features? Why not just make mouse gestures and these other things you're bringing over from Opera, stack tabs? I mean, cool stuff, but couldn't you make those extensions, uh, you know, plugins for Firefox or Chrome instead of knitting the whole thing and going, yeah, let's replicate two million lines of code and keep it all secure? Sure, but I think it's you know it's okay. So it's no secret that both of us work for a software company, and uh, when I th when I see stuff like this, my first thought is what's what is the the problem they're trying to solve, or or what's the niche they're trying to fill, and I it's just it's just another browser. I mean. It, as you said, you know, there's there's a lot more complexity behind having a pretty UI in today's, you know, browser war, if you will, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff that happens under the covers. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen in a streamlined way. And yeah, are they going to do it right? I guess time will tell. Um, I'm not ready to say, you know, to throw this out, but I'm just trying to figure out where does it fit in, in, in within the landscape of browsers that we already have and can it offer me a value proposition that none of the other ones uh, are able to fill yeah i think it seems unlikely but it is you know it's a wait and see thing i mean if you're trying to take quote market share away from opera you you don't really have a long way to climb so we'll, we'll see now please opera fans direct all of your email to dev at null.org um <laughs> i really don't 
want to get into that. But I mean, Linux is about choice. It's another choice. We'll see how it goes. Own Cloud 8. So you mentioned Own Cloud in the intro. Uh, Own Cloud 8 is out. Uh, I, I've updated my system, which is free. Although I'm not sure it's as Libra as Generalissimo Stallman would want, because uh, currently my my server I run my own cloud in, on is uh, running FreeBSD. But I'm you know I, I barely noticed from an administrative perspective, but you know not bad, right? I mean like the couple new features, external storage is cool, like being able to tie in an S3, tie in a Dropbox, these types of things. I I, I don't like a lot of those services from a security perspective. Uh, I prefer to keep everything local. I, I, I want the jackbooted thugs to actually knock on my door so I know they're here to take away my stuff as opposed to handing it over to Dropbox or some other organization to decide if their lawyers tell them they need to. But OwnCloud having all that flexibility is pretty awesome, actually. I mean, it's a consolidated view of a lot of things, better federation support, better performance. It all seems pretty good to me. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the the external media thing is a good thing. I still use some of the other popular services out there, the the Dropbox-like services, for things that I need to share with maybe some of my customers, right? Um, Data sheets, that kind of stuff. And so if I'm able to at least control that in one spot, then the more the better. I do hope that, uh, and and this is something that you and I have actually... uh, have embarked on trying to do the whole federation thing uh, and, and we'll report back on some of our testing but i hope the federated piece works really well because we do collaborate on quite a bit of stuff and it would be nice if it was a true sort of two-way share where we could both uh, add and delete and modify data whereas in, in the past it was kind of a it was two one-way shares that you had to do which was a bit of a pain if you will uh, so yeah, the Federation, if they've done it right, if they've improved it in the way that they say they have, I think uh, will prove to be very useful for many people, including us. I think that the package itself, you know, it's 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 exactly what you expect out of OwnCloud, a very solid, very reliable package that can uh, enable you to, to share across multiple devices and, and do some sort of quasi backup as well. Well, let's be fair. There's nothing insanely clever about it other than the fact that it's not in somebody else's backyard. Like, we're really just re-knitting what a lot of commercial services are offering, whether that be SkyDrive, OneDrive, Google Drive, Dropbox, Box.com, <laughs> you know. Exactly. All those things. Yeah, and it's you're right. And, and that's that's the reason why we chose it is because the server is, in my case in my basement and i know to your point if somebody wants that data they're actually going to have to break down my door at least knock and ask politely yeah and 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 to me with a warrant of course well exactly and i mean it sounds like a a thing to be nitpicking over but i think it's important that um the, the the concern most of us have with things around the snowden leaks and security and privacy and secrecy and all these types of things is about oversight it's not that we think that uh, the police shouldn't be allowed to investigate and you know we we should surrender to the terrorists it's that we have control and we understand that the rule of law is being followed and that kind of thing and uh, i like my data being on my equipment and i'm i'm looking at an array of things it's shocking the amount of terabytes within um a a, a a couple feet of my chair and all of that data is encrypted and it's protected by me and it's my responsibility to take care of it. And I like that. And own cloud lets me do that. I think it's pretty cool. And I love, you know, you and I collaboratively work on a lot of presentations together. And I love the fact that no matter where I'm at in the world, 
I can grab all of either of our presentations from the share that we have on own cloud to mine data from and incredibly convenient and made my life a lot easier. Now, you found an interesting post about uh, presentations. I guess I'm a command line guy, but I hadn't really considered using Bash, let's say, <laughs> to do a presentation. Now, if I would thought of this before I was at scale uh, a week and a half ago at the Southern California Linux Expo, I might have actually considered doing my talk this way because I'm sure I would have got some geek cred. Yeah, so this is, uh, I, I honestly don't know where I found this. It's It was in one of my feeds, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a package called MDP, which I believe is stands for Markdown Presentation. I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm taking a guess here. Um, and it's basically written in NCURSES, and it's a, it's a command line presentation tool uh, for Linux. And so, uh, you know, in those times when LibreOffice and Press just isn't, uh, isn't cooperating and you can't get your crossover you know, PowerPoint to work, there is a third option, which is basically running a command line presentation. It's, it's difficult to really, you know, talk about or paint the picture for you. And we'll have the link in, in the blog, but uh, it's just what you think it would be. It's a command line uh, ASCII representation with very basic text and bulleting features. But I think like, to your point, now there's a little bit of geek cred that goes along with that. Hey, like, you know, you, you might be the best command line guru out there, but hey, can you run a presentation in command line? And I think this is one of those things that'll help you sort of get to that next belt level, if you will. So ASCII art meets PowerPoint is what we're talking about in essence. And if I can find a way to render a corporate logo into this thing in ASCII art so that I'm not uh, accosted by the brand police at our company, I think I'm down with this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, it's one of those fun things that, hey, you know, I'm glad that whoever came up with this had the time and expertise to actually code it because I think a lot of people out there are going to get a kick out of it. Well, I guess changing gears to companies where all good things go to die, um, there's a lot of questions about the future of VirtualBox, which is now owned by Oracle after the Sun acquisition. And, uh, you know, I have to say I felt that to a degree myself, right? I mean, I use VirtualBox sporadically. I don't use it uh, all the time anymore. I mean, I, I have a, uh, a UTM unified threat management device running in a VirtualBox that, that manages my home network. Occasionally, I play with viruses and malware and things like this and VMs. And, and I, don't, I think my primary use for virtual machines these days is um, not having to deal with wine. Like, I have a Windows 7 set up in a VM, and when I run across that annoying device I buy that only lets me update the firmware or blah, blah, blah from Windows, I can fire it up in the virtual box, not actually have to have a real Windows installation. But it, like, the pace has slowed down dramatically in the last couple of years. Like, it just, I mean, I'm not sure it needs more. As long as it works with a current kernel, I kind of ignore it, and it just works. But yeah, I, I do use it quite a bit in terms of uh, getting, like you said, things that, you know, just only work in Windows or only support in Windows for the most part, at least at home, it's things like iDevices that, you know, just at least on the Arch platform, there's no great way of, of managing them. So spin up a, you know, a quick a Windows VM and you're, you're good to go. I, you I know, mean, I have a solution for that. I, I broke my, my, my uh, iPod. So if you break it, you could buy something that's free Libra and then you don't have to deal with that. But but I don't. Rec I guess <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't recommend you you intentionally break stuff to not have to use Windows. But maybe. 
Well, yeah, and you, you try prying an iDevice out of a seven-year-old's hand. It's a little bit tougher than you think. But I do use it as well for, you know, for things like testing. And, you know, we do, when we do some of our presentations, we need to, to spin up some VMs. So it's been very useful. And I, I, I honestly haven't really felt the need to go to anything else. It's got all the features that I need and I'm used to. Uh, maybe it doesn't have all the fancy stuff that, that VMware has, but it, it actually just does the trick. And, uh, yeah, it, would it be nice to have a little bit better command over things like the, you know, the virtual networking? Sure, but again, it it's all about uh, requirements and, and needs and wants, right? It does what I need, and so the stuff that I want, while nice, uh, I just, you know, it's not necessary right now. Yeah, I, I've tried to move toward open solutions more than VirtualBox when I can. Uh, I, I've used Zen in the past. I've used KVM. These lots of different things. But there is something handy about the no-nonsense, you know, click the GUI, install stuff, get it to work. It seems to work well. Uh, this was a story from Pharonix, and, and Michael Larabelle got a response from some Oracle employees saying, oh, no, no, there's not just four, you know, four developers left on the project, although we're not allowed to talk about how many. And I thought, well, they, they just had a data leak because uh, they told us it wasn't four. Uh, they've, they've narrowed the field. But uh, I'm glad that Oracle's still developing, and I'm, I'm just suspect. I don't have any faith or trust in Oracle from uh, an open open source perspective and I, i'm glad it's being developed i wish it were truly open source so that if it gets abandoned in different ways maybe it can be picked up and carried on but if not at least we have alternatives and we'll see what happens with it like you i don't use vmware primarily because i don't need any of the functionality like it's great what versions of it are available for free usage and all that but it they're not the free versions aren't flexible enough to do what I need to do every day, and the paid versions are ten times more than I need. And so, VirtualBox kind of does fit that middle niche. Uh, I, I hope that it, it continues on. Yeah, at the end of the day, the current shipping version of VirtualBox is enough for me. And, and I think you know, if we were to freeze it right now, I, I'd, I'd still be happy. Probably a couple of years from now. Well, I, you know, I felt that way about Thunderbird. Um, in fact, a former colleague of mine was the lead project manager for Thunderbird for a while at the Mozilla project. And Thunderbird sort of had a, I don't want to say discontinued, but a stall. Like Mozilla wasn't really focusing on it. Sort of like, you know, development's done. You know, here it is. When there's bug fixes, we'll release them. And I was a little disappointed because I use Thunderbird on all my machines for everything I do. Uh, I, I, you know, my personal email, I, I still have a Gmail account. My work email, which I do through some plugins. Uh, I love Thunderbird and was quite disappointed it wasn't marching along. But the numbers are interesting. Like it continues to get more popular even after... I, you know, I don't want to say deprecation because it's it's still in development, but partial abandonment. <laughs> like the numbers are up over 9 million people are now using Thunderbird. Yeah, they're approaching 10 million. And that, that 9 million number was as of January of this year. So who knows? Maybe they've actually surpassed that at this point. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's a that's a doubling in, in only, you know, seven years. OK, that, that sounds terrible compared to Snapchat or, you know, some startup company. But Thunderbird's an established thing. And, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty impressive, 9 million. I just hope more development happens because it's certainly not the best email client I can imagine. It's simply the best email client I have access to that can get the job done every day. And, you know, back to talking about GNOME and XFCE and things like shortcuts, like all these things are baked into my brain now. I can really work a Thunderbird session. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm I, I'm a Thunderbird user in the same way that you are. I get my both my personal and work email through it. I think that having used Outlook for so many years, I'm still kind of looking for that 
kind of spit polish that it just doesn't have yet. However, you know, it does what I need. I, I have the extensions that I need. I can I can do encryption and sign messages. And uh, more importantly, I think, you know, both of us are owe a bit of a debt of gratitude to, to Ken James for actually being active and developing things like Miskia and Exkia for Thunderbird that actually enable us to do this stuff, right? Without the work that he's put into some of the add-ons that he's brought to, uh, to the market, uh, we couldn't be actually using Thunderbird in our regular daily lives as easily as we do. Uh, last couple items to talk about. The uh, FOSDEM conference wrapped up in Brussels, Belgium uh, a couple weeks back, and most of us don't. I mean, I wish I could go to Belgium. It sounds so good right now. Like, of all the beers in the world, I mean, and if you love beer, you have to really have an appreciation for the Belgians. It's sort of sad that I wasn't able to go, but like most people, I'm guessing we weren't able to go considering the number of people who are uh, open source advocates and the number of small number of people that get to attend in a conference like this. And so it's really great. They're posting all of the talks online at their website on fosdem.org. And we'll have a link in the show notes for that. And uh, some of the talks are fantastic. And they're, they're going up slowly because, of course, it requires a lot of editing to, to put all the stuff together. And, and, you know, just editing this podcast takes a silly amount of time. So when you think about editing video compared to audio, it's even more complicated. So we have to be patient, but it's really great. Everybody gets to benefit from some of these really inspired talks. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's always great when we can benefit from some of those conferences that we just can't attend and again that's just that goes towards the spirit of this community right being able to participate in something and then share it out to the rest of the world for those of us who actually couldn't be there as a matter of fact you were just at the southern california linux expo and why don't you tell us a little bit about that that was pretty awesome, honestly. I, I'd never been before, and I was invited out uh, after uh, doing a talk at B-Sides Los Angeles uh, in, in the autumn of 2014. And so, you know, I didn't really know Please what to... Please tell me that wasn't the one on the beach. It was, actually, yeah. It was fantastic. It's the first security conference I've ever been to on a beach. But the, the, they invited me out, and I said, you know, it'd be fun. I could do some Linux research. Uh, I don't often have a good reason to do Linux research because in, in the malware scene, you know, Windows is so dominant that that's what most people expect and want to talk about. So uh, I said, yeah, it would be an interesting challenge. I went out there and it was great. Like, I mean, it was a who's who of open source, certainly in North America. I mean, everybody had a stand there, uh, you know, Mozilla, Red Hat, Ubuntu, SUSE, Oracle, MySQL, MariaDB, local community groups, um, uh, the, 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 the just an astounding assortment of people involved in the community. And in such an open, diverse way, which is the best part of the conference I really enjoyed, like uh, for our community, a shockingly large number of minorities and women and things participating in a very uh, uh, fun educational atmosphere. It was just, I, what, I, I have to put it up way at the top of my list for one of the favorite conferences to attend. And my talk at scale was about malware in the Linux ecosystem and how Linux plays a role in all of this. And we think about, you know, well, there's there's the people who do the full head in the sand, right? That there is no malware on Linux. And then there's people who are realistic and realize there is, but it isn't terribly common. Uh, although we could talk about that, it's getting more common. And then there's people who realize that whether it's malware focused on harming Linux users or not, Linux still plays a rather large role in the ecosystem of malware itself and that, you know, it, it's Linux's role as hosting so much of the internet means that it hosts a lot of bad things. And that raises a lot of questions. And so my talk was about what, what do we do as responsible uh, 
administrators of Linux systems, whether our own banking details are being stolen by a Trojan, which seems pretty unlikely on a Linux desktop, is different than is my web server being hijacked by criminals to infect 100,000 innocent people around the world who are having their bank credentials stolen? Yes, I think that's the the best point to make. It's just it's the fact that Linux is so integral to a lot of the infrastructure of the internet. And to your point, while it, Linux itself might not be as susceptible to an actual malware infection, uh, it does lead to other problems. And if we can at least you know cut it off at the source, you know, according to a lot of your research, there the amount of malware being hosted and served up by Linux servers is quite significant. And so if we can at least just cut that piece out by taking a, you know, a modicum of prevention, then why not do it, right? It's not going to, it's not going to cost you that much in terms of resources to, to actually do the work. So let's just, you know, Let's put that that stake in the sand now and say, all right, let's make sure that every Linux distro out there that's running and publicly facing has some anti-malware capability, and maybe we can make it a little bit more difficult for the bad guys to get their product out to the general public. Well, it's a lot harder than it looks, but we'll see what happens. I mean, what if we could simply get to a point where people installing Linux servers on the open internet to host applications, keep them up to date and patch them, that would be a big, big move forward because the vast majority of the systems that I analyzed, I looked at 170,000 different web pages that were hosting malicious content. And the vast majority of them were running very outdated Linux systems that weren't uh, getting fixes. And so by getting patches to fix their WordPress, to fix vulnerable things like Heartbleed and Ghost and, you know, these different bits and pieces, all of those things make a big, big difference getting them done. And hopefully people will do that. And uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to attend a Linux expo like this, I really recommend it. I mean, uh, the I think there's the, in the United States, certainly there's uh, a, a Southeast Linux festival and a Northwest Linux festival. And I think a Northeast Linux festival that are all happening regionally. And if any of them approach the quality of what I saw at scale, you'll have a fun time. You'll learn a bunch. You'll make professional contacts and personal contacts you'll have for life. And uh, can't really recommend enough that you try to get involved in these things if you care about the community. So the moral of the story is get out there and share the love. This has been Linux at Work episode two. To contact us and stay in touch, visit us at https colon slash slash www.linuxatwork.org. Uh, podcasts are available there via uh, RSS. You can get us on iTunes. Uh, you can communicate with us over Twitter at at Linux at Work or on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash Linux at Work. <laughs> You got everything gonna be everyone gotta be everyone Don't say you got anything gotta be everything gotta be everything But I don't know what I need but I